So you inherently you need to think from day one, how is the behavior on your product incentivizing social behavior or you know group behavior? And that's just a loop that keeps on giving. It's not something that we build a product and then the team sits and think, okay, how can we make it social? That rarely works. It needs to be from day one part of core selling point. Gabi, we've known each other now for a decade. That sounds crazy to say. I was an investor in Plarium early on, the company that you founded with the three additional founders, one of them your brother. We eventually sold for more than $500 million to Aristocrat. And, you know, we do these days these posts about why we invest in companies. And, you know, thinking about this session, I thought about why did I invest in Plarium? And we usually have like three reasons, like you know, number one, because of the network effect and number two and so on. And when I thought about Plarium, the funny thing that came to my mind is that why did I invest in Plarium? I invested because of three things. It was team, team, and team. Because on paper, there were so many reasons not to invest. But then there was the team, the team, and the team that made me invest. And I'm so happy that I did because I got to meet you guys and be friends and join this amazing journey. You're an amazing game founder that I want to talk about today, which means that you are have this rare combination of innovation, fast iteration, and quality that game companies require. And the reason why I want to talk to you here today is because I want to share this with all other founders because I think one of the biggest secrets is that the things that make game companies successful can actually make any company successful. And this is something thing that we've been saying for a while now. And I think that lots of founders could really benefit from understanding what makes game companies succeed. So welcome, Gabi. Thanks for having me on the podcast and let's have fun. And so the first thing I want to talk about is speed. And, you know, when we talk about speed, we talk about ultra fast iterations, right? This is the kind of psychology that we keep lecturing on. And it carries a lot of magic and it turns the company into something else. But the games industry in general is faster than any other industry. It's like crazily fast with crazy fast iteration. A lot of it is because we have so much data. But like, what did it take you to build your first game when you started? Yeah, it was a great story. I think because we knew exactly what we were building, we put a product out there in a month. It was, I don't know, 30 days, maybe a little less. And the idea was to put something out there so we'd be first movers and to iterate as we go along, right? And we knew that this is something that was required of every games company at the time. And the idea was to just get out there and start doing business. And I think that that was a very good move for us. What was that first game? It was a social poker game on BK. So it was a hugely fastly growing social network in Eastern Europe. And it was a big opportunity to be one of the first developers on that platform. So we kind of seized that opportunity. And we knew that first thing that we're going to do, it needs to be something that kind of is proven and works. That's why it was poker. And that's why in one month. And what do you think you did faster than anybody else at the time? Because I know that you guys became sort of the largest developer on that platform and really in a matter of month. What made you so fast at the time? We felt that the market was about to explode and it's 10, 12 years since it's still exploding. So I think what drove us is that we felt we had to seize the moment, seize the opportunity. Just to give you an example, Gigi, back then a user would cost a cent to acquire. I mean, we're all the viral, right? A bit different from today, right? Right. So we thought it was crazy. So we thought, okay, as much as content we can get out there, as many games at that stage, then we'll just get a big chunk of a loyal user base. That was driving our passion to kind of be super fast. And quality was always very important for us. So we never really sacrificed quality. So I could proudly say it was a top poker app at that time. 
and even a couple of years ahead. So we felt we, we did both. And so this is really an interesting topic because at the end of the day, I think many founders are always feeling that they need to sacrifice one of the two. And you've got like, you know, one approach is move fast and break things and come out with maybe poor quality, but at least you're moving very fast. And another approach is let's build something pixel perfect and put it out only when it's really, really, really amazing. Before that, I don't want to put it out. It's my baby. I want it to be perfect. How did you strike the balance? How did you strike the balance between, you know, just continuing to polish the game forever, which is what some game companies, you know, tend to do sometimes and actually move fast as fast as you did. How do you manage to find the balance and what do you think other founders can learn from that? I think what I learned throughout the history of Plutarium, I would say is this, right? You have to do few things very well. So few things you need to have very high quality, right? And where founders kind of make the mistake is that they say, okay, I need to do everything great and everything needs to be polished. And only then I'm going to go to the market. And that's not necessarily true because you don't necessarily need huge depth from day one. You need that core product, the core, whatever, if it's a game, if it's a feature, whatever it is, the core needs to be strong and needs to be polished and then you can iterate. So the idea is to get the core out very quickly, to start testing. And then once you feel super confident about that, then you can build on top. There's no point in investing in something a user is going to experience only in month eight, right? When you can test at the beginning. So that's the idea. So that's how you do quality, basically. Focus on less quality, do it fast, and then build. Okay, so the framework that I'm hearing here is that basically the best thing is to start from a very small part of the game, maybe not the full thing that you need to build over time, but make that high quality. The equivalent for other founders would be start with the core of your app or the core of your product, make this core really well, build it really perfectly, put it out as fast as you can. And then when you see it works, start expanding into more content or more features or more additional things that you need around the core. And one of the best recent examples of this was PUBG on mobile. And what they did is they even put out the first version without monetization, without even payments, right? Yeah. And they put up an amazing game without payments. If you look at the games today, of course, it's skyrocketed in the monetization. But the engagement was there day one. So how do you decide what's the core? So each product is different, right? If it's the battle itself, right? If it's the core loop, the battle and the meta, if it's depending on what genre you are, right? So eventually there's one or two things that your users come back to your game every day. Yep. If that's not good, everything else around it is not really worth much, right? So that's the way you need to look at it. So if it's the core battle, if it's the core shooter mechanics, I don't know, if it's the art style that you want to test, you don't need to build 1,000 characters, right? You need to build 10, 12. If that fits, that works, people love that, you can expand the content. So that's the way we look at it. And so, you know, at the end of the period when uh, just before uh, leaving Plarium, the company was already thousands of people with games making, you know, hundreds of millions, close to a billion dollars in revenue. How do you maintain that in a larger company? How did you manage to maintain that speed? Did you manage to maintain kind of working on a fast core and then growing from that? That's a very good question. I think the way we did it, and I think in games, it's a little bit easier than in other industries is we had very dedicated teams per game, right? Per direction. When you break things up, that makes things move much quicker because you're not as dependent. Each team is not waiting for the other team, right? So, so they can, in their own pace, quickly build out the game content, live ops. So you kind of break it down to pieces and manage each process, each studio on its own. And that gives you a lot of flexibility and speed, right? You're not waiting for this headquarter organization to approve every little thing and you create as little bottleneck as possible. The way you grow big is you stay small 
and the whole combination of the group is big, right? But you keep the dedicated product teams small and quick. Just to add one more thing, I think with that, the incentive structure is also important, right? Everybody also needs to feel that whatever they're building, they have a big upside in what they're building. You don't come into a big organization, build something amazing and feel like it's not aligned with what you're building. We'll get back to the culture of a large organization, but I think one of the things that really was always amazing in Plarium was that our managers, the people that were working for the company all across the world, and you know we had many sites around the world, all of them seemed to be as addicted to speed and to getting quick to market as the founders. And I've always found that phenomenal because many times the founders want that, but the rest of the team is just not that. And so I'm kind of wondering, what did you do that allowed you to get everybody addicted on speed the way usually just the founders are? What was the secret for that? The secret for that was we very clearly told every studio what is their target? What is their market opportunity? What are they going after, right? And that gave them a lot of motivation to go and build better products, faster products. And I think that's very clear, right? They need to know exactly who they're going against, what they can do better, how they can do better, and where the market stands. That continuous chase against the market and getting better, especially in games, where you see innovation on a weekly basis. If you have that feedback loop with the team all the time and they see what they're doing, but they also see what the market is and where they're heading, that motivates them even more to prove themselves and to continuously improve. And inherently, that definitely adds speed. And then were there anything in the weekly processes or in the way you work with them on an ongoing basis that continued reminding them how fast they need to be? Because many of them came from other industries. They were not necessarily game people. And all of them got kind of educated to be game people and to move really fast. Did you find any processes that helped you basically get them to be like that? Of course, we're a very data-driven company. Data is key to being fast because without data, you cannot really move fast. You don't know where to move. So one thing, you need to have the layer of data analytics, all of that. Another thing, you need to have very clear KPIs and what are you trying to improve, right? Is it day one? Is it day three? Is it session time? Is it engagement per day? As we dug in into our games, the more KPIs we had, we could create shorter term goals much quicker and kind of follow up on that. Like more granular data, the more short-order term because if you're optimizing towards day 30, of retention. There's probably 100 factors in between that could be optimized to improve that between day one and day 30. The more granular we got, the more we were able to drive the team to kind of improve all those KPIs. If it's payment, retention, session time, return to deposit, whatever the KPI was, right? So it's a combination of being data-driven and kind of hungry to improve every single data point that we collected. So that's super interesting. So what I'm basically hearing is that the framework is to take the big OKRs, the big goals, break them into smaller chewable KPIs that are much quicker, and then assign them to people and measure them on them and basically use them as a language so that you basically are encouraging speed through the data. And then it's very objective also, right? It's very objective that numbers were moving or not, how quickly we can do that. And what were your framework in hiring people? At the end of the day, you know, I keep thinking that game companies have very unique talent. How did you know beforehand which people could or couldn't become this, you know, data addicted, very fast moving, very iterative people before recruiting them? What was the frameworks around that? I think we had a very particular culture at Plarium. We looked at certain things across all the studios. Across all the headquarters, it was hunger, hunger to succeed. Honestly, we look less at experience because this is something that we just didn't have in the locations that we're at. We look more for ability to learn. And we also facilitate it, right? So if it was learning English, if it was switching from web to Unity, if it was just learning how to work with data, 
All of this is something that was super important for us internally at Plarium, and we had courses for each one of them. We had internal courses with our teachers that we kind of pushed people to do that. So people that succeeded the most at Plarium, I would say not just the most talented people, but they were the people that could learn the quickest. And we had an organization where we kind of gave benefit to people that were fast learners. It wasn't political, right? It was about, can you perform? Can you grow? And one of the best examples of that, we had a guy in one of our studios, which was growing banners. And within three years, he became an art lead on one of our biggest games. Because he was good. Because he was good, right? That cannot happen in any organization, right? Politically or whatever. But in our organization, we felt that people that were growing up fast, we gave them the opportunity. It's scary, but this is what it takes to kind of foster that innovation data mentality. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, one thing that jumps to my mind is that you use the word that I don't often use, but I often think about, which is hunger, when I think about founders, right? So when I look at the founders I want to invest in, the word hunger comes to mind. And, you know, maybe I'm not using it because it could have some negative context in people's minds, but it's actually a great one. And for me, the biggest question is how do you identify hunger? How do you basically manage to interview somebody and see what's the framework for identifying somebody as hungry or not hungry? That's a very good question. So for us, it was one of the huge interview questions where we looked at how did the person look at his career, right? What was important for him in his career? Was it important for him to just get titles or it was important for him to learn at the job? So we'd say, okay, where do you want to be in three years professionally, right? And if we felt the person was really professionally, he wanted to level up, we felt that was the right person. If the guy would say, look, I'm reading a lot. I'm always following the market. I'm always learning new technologies. All of that were indicators of a person that wanted to come in, contribute, and learn at the job. And a lot of people that came to Plarium, I think, we hired them because they were super excited about products that we're building. And that drove a lot of the drive, hunger to succeed, to show that they can compete with the big publishers in the West and in the East. I actually remember in the time uh, when I was at the board of the company that we used to speak about senior people that wanted to join the company. And you guys would look at them and say, they're too senior. They're not going to be hungry. They're not going to do everything. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to be as committed as the kind of people that we recruit. And that strategy worked really well. And I think that in many cases, this is a, a balance that founders want to strike between getting people that have experience and maybe they've done this before because it's a shortcut on one hand, but then getting people with the right DNA, the DNA of hunger, the DNA of wanting to learn, the DNA of wanting to improve. And what we always tell founders, and, uh, and you know, I'm interested if you think the same, is that we always prefer attitude to skill. We always would prefer somebody that comes with the right attitude than somebody that just comes with the right skills, even if the skills are better, because the person with the right attitude would learn much faster and actually end up performing much better than the person that comes with the skills, but the wrong attitude. Do you feel the same? Yeah, definitely. I think in today's world where education is democratized and you can learn so much, you know, within the company, online, from peers, everything's so open and transparent. So attitude is number one attribute and then the skill because the gap could be caught up very quickly. What do you see in your companies? What do you see in terms of like hiring? Yeah, I think one of the things we're trying to do always is we're trying to teach founders to take the leap of faith and prefer attitude to skill. And it's not an easy one because many times at the end of the day, you want to recruit somebody and you wanted them to tick all the boxes. You know, they need five years experience in this and three years experience in that. But if they don't come with the right DNA, they're going to be a liability on the company and they're going to end up slowing the company down and eventually leaving. And then not only are you not going to enjoy their skills, but you're also going to leave scars that are going to hurt the organization. And so we're constantly telling founders that, you know, we really 
really need to first and foremost test people for attitude, for the right DNA. And it's not even the same people for the same company. The companies are different. So you need different DNAs for different companies. But when you find the person that has the right DNA, getting them to the right skill set is much easier than the other way around. People hardly ever change attitude and very often can learn new skills. On that topic, one of the things that was also very impressive in Plarium was the fact that Plarium kept growing talent from within. I think that, you know, over the years, we've had some senior managers that moved on. And there were always managers from within that could grow to the role. And I think that part of it is the culture of constant learning and constant improvement and teaching everybody in the company in the inside. How did you guys do that? What was the principle behind it? Because I think that was one of the key success factors of the company. Yeah, it was not necessarily a choice. It was something that we had to do because I'm not sure if we could have survived if we didn't, right? So when we started out again, we didn't have huge talent pool to like hire from the best game published companies. Eventually, we sat down and we said, okay, if we want to be big, if we want to be at scale, we have to develop talent. And how do we develop talent, right? From teaching them to language skills, to programming skills, to data skills, to, you know, running, I would call it, mini universities within Polarium, where we took core of 20 people and we said, okay, it's a six-month course. Whoever is going to do great, three of you is going to stay in the company, right? So we did a lot of hacking and that brought us a lot of, super talented people, which were humble, which wanted to succeed, and that were very loyal also. Yeah, that was very clear in the company. Our HRs still are doing an amazing job at developing talent. It's a muscle that we had to acquire, but I think it was one of our biggest strengths. And this is something, it's a long-term investment, right? It's always a long-term investment, but the sooner you make that investment, right, the sooner you plant the seeds, the more upside you're going to see. It's something that some companies delay. They think about it. Let me think about it. It doesn't work like this. If it's a good idea, start, execute. The worst thing that's going to happen, you'll scratch it. You'll find talent somewhere else, right? So you have to take risks. You have to take risks like that. I think that's one of few things that we did in the company that worked out very well. Yeah, and I totally agree. I think that always investing in getting your internal talent to constantly learn and constantly advance will pay back dividends. You know, when do you need people to do more than what they're doing today? When you need to promote people? The best companies out there are those where the vast majority of open positions, uh, managerial ones, are being fulfilled by internal talent. And these people that grew within the company, with the DNA of the company, and are now taking a managerial role, they tend to be the best managers that you can bring. You know, and entering the position is going to be so much easier for them because they come from the right DNA, from the DNA of the company. And that was something super, super strong in Plarium. And it's important to show that you're willing to promote within because the trust comes from the actually you as a company showing that you believe in talent that you have grown, right? And not all of a sudden hire some super high key exec and then give opportunity to the people that were with you for five, seven years, right? Do not just say you have to show it. When you do hire from outside, you need to be very sure that that person is going to drive value. I truly believe as long as you hire people or you even grow people, as long as people feel like they're driving value, they're willing to take orders or whatever. They're willing to listen to anybody as long as it's driving value. And this is the kind of mentality that we had within Plarium. Definitely agree to that. Let's talk for a second about pivoting. So, you know, Plarium as a games company, you know, continued doing games. So it started doing games and it continued doing games. But over the period, you know, we started from a Russian social network called VK. We moved to Facebook and found a much better target audience there. And then we had to completely almost abandon that, not abandon, but move on and move to mobile. And each one of those while not a pivot in the direction of the company, was a huge pivot in the company itself, right? You know, it's new skills, new capabilities, new everything. How does that work? How do you think about this process that basically forces you 
to take the company, a successful company, where everybody kind of looks at it and says, it's sort of working, it's still working, it will continue working. But then as founders, knowing that if you don't move, it's not going to be as good as it could be. How did you think about it? How did the company make the changes? I think it was our obsession with growth, not just financially. And I think we're very confident in our ability. So when we were in VK, our thinking was, oh, we can be number one developer in Eastern Europe. All we have to conquer Facebook to be a global player. So that was the goal. And we said, we decided we have to be a global player. We can do more. And the way we did it is we never took one bet. We always felt that the team that is supporting the existing business, it needs to be there. So you kind of have to do it as you expand talent and expand team. It's very hard to ask the same team, you know what, maintain the current business and then grow into new platforms. So we understood that we had to invest in talent, so hire people. And then from Facebook to mobile, that was even harder because technologically that was even a bigger jump. What we were thinking is we had to do it, otherwise we'll miss out one of the biggest opportunities ever in the games industry. And it was a matter of time until, you know, social games would cap out. So For us, we sat down and we decided how much we want to invest, how many people, 200 people, 300 people. And it was a matter of being patient because it didn't happen overnight. It took us a couple of years to succeed on mobile. And even if some of our best teams didn't make it on mobile for like three, four, five years. So we had to take a lot of bets, be very patient, take hits on PL, which some companies don't love to do. But you can't have the upside if you're not going to financially invest. So we're big believers in that. And I would even add a few more points, Gigi, that we're willing to invest always ahead of time, ahead of our ability, at least. Maybe not ahead of time, but ahead of our ability saying, you know what, we're going to invest in motion capture studio because in three, four years, that's going to yield the dividends. Not something that yielded dividends year one, but we felt if we build capacity and capability, then down the line, we could build any game we want. And we felt that would pay dividends down the line. So the thinking was very long term. It's not a short term decisions. We're lucky that we had stable revenue and that kind of helped us make those pivots. And allowed the company to do these pivots without having to raise more money, which was, I think, you know, great for the founders. I think in this, something that jumps to my mind as I hear you speak is the principle that I always thought about you guys and maybe some other most successful game companies, which is in order to succeed, I guess, generally in startups, you need to play to win rather than not to lose right? Because you can always play to not lose. You can invest less money. You can do things carefully. You cannot run to a new field. You can say, I'm not going to invest in the studio. I'm not going to invest in the technology. But if you want to play to win, then you really can't stop. You need to continue chasing growth at all price. You need to continue taking risks, even when the company theoretically in a good place. And that was one of the characteristics that worked for Plarium. And I think about it now, works for the most successful games companies. It's this ongoing desire to continue playing to win. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think we as founders pushed each other in a very good way where we said we can do more and we can invest in the future. I'll be honest, we failed a lot. But so what? Nobody remembers the failures now. Now we can look at successes that we had, you know. So we weren't afraid to fail. That's very important. We weren't afraid to spend money and maybe to lose cash that we could have pocketed or whatever because it was a profitable company. It cannot be a financial exercise, let's put it that way. It needs to be an exercise that you are much more obsessed about success than about potentially losing a certain amount of cash flow or money. And that's the way we always looked at it, so... It wasn't a smooth ride, but it's definitely, when I look back, worth it. And looking back, if we would invest more, we would probably yield bigger fruits now. Two things that jump to my mind on this. The first one is that 
You really have to be paranoid to not miss these pivoting opportunities. There are also risks, but opportunities because you wouldn't have thought that Facebook is going to beat VK. If you wouldn't have thought that mobile is going to eat desktop, then you would have been behind. You guys were paranoid enough to say, you know, where is it going? Where is everything moving? And the second thing is that to really, really succeed in making such pivots, you really need to go all in. There's like, no, you can't do it half-heartedly. You know, you need to, you know, there's this famous move of Facebook from web to mobile, where basically everybody that was not working on mobile was supposed to stop whatever they were doing and start working on mobile. And I think that, you know, while with Plarium continued running the web games, the general understanding was that we're taking every top talent we have and we're putting this on this new front and we're basically making a hard pivot rather than a soft attempt at going at it. Right. For sure. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this, but even the people that stayed back and worked on games that may not seem so attractive, they knew their purpose in a sense. Like they knew that they were the ones that were creating chance for the new studios or new games to be created, right? So it also made sense on the organization level, but I 100% agree with you that many of these initiatives, we went all in. I think any big company has to reinvent itself every couple of years, no matter how big you are. If you're Apple, Facebook, and the best companies do, this is an obsession and DNA thing. If you don't, especially in today's world where the pace of innovation is going to be left behind. So it's the mindset of nothing is secure and you always have to out-innovate yourself and even out-cannibalize yourself, right? So this was one of the things that we were never afraid of, cannibalizing our game or our products. We would rather be in the front of that than be behind in innovation. As I always like telling founders that are facing this issue, I'm telling them that it's uh, much better to cannibalize yourself than have somebody else eat you. Let's talk for a second about the social element or the network element of our Plarium games. And I think that, you know, People call games social games, but in reality, the, the vast majority of them were not social. Like you were playing them against yourself, more or less, and maybe inviting other people. But one of the things that made the Plarium game so successful with such crazy, crazy retention, like people playing four or five years or more at the same game and continuing to spend money in it, was the fact that they were really, really social. You were really playing them with other people. And for us, you know, their network effect had on. And this is really critical because it shows how once you created the network inside the game, it becomes so difficult to to leave the game and it brings the power of retention and the power of retained growth that network effects bring. How did you really embed this into the games and you know how real was the need for the network inside the game and the benefits it provided the players? We had many titles. So poker was inherently as a game very social, right? And there were some games that were inherently non-social. But let's talk about the social ones. Poker, even strategy, right? Our strategy games, the whole idea was playing strategies is playing with your clanmates, right? Some people call it their second family, and we facilitate a lot of that. So the idea is, the way we thought about it is, you have to build it at the core, and this is not something you can add later on. It needs to be core design of the product of the game, right? In strategy, you had to team up with your clan members, up to 100 people, 50, 100 people, and together you kind of had to go on different missions and the different survival tactics, and you had to build out armies together. It was a team effort. And that bonding experience kind of brought them closer to each other and to the game at the same time, right? So what we facilitated is the game design. So we built a design the game in a way where we kind of pushed users to do that. Of course, we had all the social features like chat. And on top of that, Outside of the game, we also did a lot of facilitation. Like we created a lot of tools for clans to communicate, talk to each other. You know, some clans asked us for merch, for flags, whatever, for their offline event. It was building the game, it was also managing the community in a way and helping them bond that kind of created the game social and drove retention long term. 
what we saw is that the same game with clans would command like you know double the retention quality than the game without clans because of the connection between people. And the way that you've really done it is that the game actually became much better when you played it with others, right? Like a true network effect phenomenon. You could achieve more, you could do more, you could reach new heights only by playing with your friends, with people that you knew online, not necessarily your friend from home, but with people that you partnered with. Yes, you would unlock the different content, the different shops, different game mechanics that as a single player was not necessarily. So we definitely incentivize that in the design of the game. And so if you think about non-game companies, what would you recommend to non-game companies when they think about the power of social in their product? What's the framework that led you to clans and to the joint activity in the game that you think non-game founders could actually take and use as well? So I would break it down to two things, tools. And tools, I think that's easier to create with all of those tools. And second is according to the design of what are you doing, right? What kind of behavior do you want to incentivize? So you really need to think, do I want them to purchase something together, right? If 20 people purchase an item, then, you know, then you get a discount or you get something for free, right? So you inherently need to think from day one, how is the behavior on your product incentivizing social behavior or, you know, group behavior? And that's just a loop that keeps on giving. It's not something that we build a product and then the team sits and thinks, okay, how can we make it social? That rarely works. It needs to be from day one part of the core selling point. What I hear is give the tools that allow it to be social. Plan the benefit of social into the core product at the beginning, not patch it onto it afterwards. Create incentives that would basically make the product better if you're consuming it in social, and then create feedback loops that constantly make it positive feedback and give benefits as people are consuming your product in a social manner. From your experience, I want to ask you the same question to you. What do you think makes a product successful? I think that at the end of the day, what we see is that what you can do in games easily is so many times tougher to do in other products. We are in NFX, we're always looking for the network effect, basically the place where adding more users in benefits the entire user community. And then the user gets a lot of value from that, from the fact that they're joining a pool, a network, a pool of users that are already doing something, right? Making something what we call a multiplayer product versus a single player product. Product. And this is something that we you know, try to teach everybody to do early on. In some places, it is always difficult. You know, if I all I want to buy is, I don't know, is a cup of coffee, maybe that's difficult to do. If I want to basically partner with others and do something, this is easier. But I think that this combination of tools, of methodology, of thinking about your product and how to make it better for a group to consume together, and then the positive feedback loops, some of them are artificial and some of them really embedded into the product are really the same thing that we're seeing everywhere. So I think that game companies just have a better chance of doing it because there's so much more activity, there's so much more data points, so much more ability to influence the behavior through the content and the features of the game, which is tougher in e-commerce and other places, but the same things actually apply. One more thing about game companies is that game companies really have probably the best mechanisms of converting free users into paid users. In many other companies, we either see companies that are great at holding tons and tons and tons of free users, and then you monetize them to ads or you don't monetize them, or they basically are really, really good at just converting users to paying, but then losing all the other users. And game companies have this phenomenal balance of being able to really keep lots of free users and then over time, convert them into paying users. What can real companies, other non-game companies learn from this thing? How do you basically maintain this balance between free tier and the pay tier 
and make it not something where you have to lose one of the two long term? I'll start with games and then we'll move on and see where we end up. I think in games, the latest trend in games is that I would say cosmetics is huge in games right now. What do I mean by cosmetics, right? So if we take a game of skill like a shooter, right, you don't necessarily want to give advantage to a player, right? Yeah. But you still want to give ability to somebody that wants to feel good, show off, you know, or just do it for himself. You want to give the player the depth for him to actually spend money in your game, right? And to feel unique. That's very important. So a lot of people, especially online, you're not seeing who you are as a personality, maybe. So you have to give those abilities to be that type of personality online. And shooters, so they do it best. If it's through clothing, if it's through the guns that you have, if it's through the shoes that you put. So customization is huge. I think it's a huge way of monetizing a free audience that would not necessarily pay right? And somebody that is playing for free doesn't necessarily feel bad because he's, the gameplay, the core gay gameplay is, is exactly the same. So I think that's a very good example. If I had to take it to non-gaming, I think you need to think of things that can add on top of experience at the core experience. So if the core experience is one, how can you make it super interesting for people that are willing to pay? Customizable, again, unique, And the more depth you can add, the more options of monetization you can have. And you need to strike that fine balance. I think it always is a balance because you don't want to upset three players because they are also heart of the soul of the ecosystem that you're building. On the other hand, you want to incentivize people to monetize and feel great. And if you look at TikTok or Facebook, I see more and more people that are consuming content on one side. They're consuming, they're enjoying, they're having fun. But people that are creating content, they should be the ones that kind of monetize, right? Yeah, it gets an incentive from that. So if a platform can think about how to help people or make money or actually monetize them by them paying them, doing extra work, customize. So that's the way I would think about it. What do you think, Gigi? What are your thoughts where the world is headed on the content creation side? I think that I agree that of balance that you need to create on it. I think that one of the things that's really unique in game companies that other companies don't really do is that kind of a knob that you turn between the free and paid that in a game company, you keep turning to test the water. You keep making it, you know, more geared towards paying, less geared towards paying. It's a little bit like, I remember um, I remember Facebook playing around with the frequency of ads or Google playing with how many ads you have above the organic result, right? Because at the end of the day, the knob of paying is like the knob of how many ads you're exposed. If there's an ad every two posts, maybe people will churn because it's annoying. If there's an ad every 50 posts, nobody cares about the ad. Facebook right now is around that one out of 10 is an ad. And I think that the same thing really applies for that knob in games where we constantly play between making the game fun forever for free. And so getting retention to be as high as possible, everybody's happy, everybody can consume whatever they want and making the game a lot more expensive to consume. And I think that, you know, some of the games of the best games in the world are the ones that are finding a way to keep the free fun element as free as possible, and then create layers of monetization on top of it that are not impacting the core fun, like you said before, like cosmetics and other areas. And what I think we see is that in many, many companies, we don't see, non-game companies, we don't see founders thinking enough about this. And in a way, what they're doing is that they're setting the knob somewhere. And what's happening is that they're starting to lose customers on the free or they're not converting enough and they're not constantly playing with it. Not to mention the fact, of course, that you can play with it very differently for different users, right? For some users, you can put the knob in one place. For another user, you can put the knob in another place in terms of conversion pressure 
on it. True. You have to play with the conversion pressure, pricing point, you know, give the user optionality to pay for something that somebody else pay, right? The more optionality you have to monetize. So sometimes people have one pay point and that's it. So you're kind of limiting your experience. So there's no reason why not to experiment with many pain points, many different products. What do we see in Gameway, which is quite amazing, is that a lot of free players are very proud that they've progressed to the same level where paid players have. And they're like, look, I got to this account free. Wow, I'm so amazing. And this guy paid $500 to get to the same spot. So there's that kind of competition between free and paid. If it's healthy, that's great. You never want to skew that one way or the other. So you see a lot of that. Yes, definitely. One more thing that's unique to the game industry is this concept called live ops. You know, so most internet companies, they build a product and they may have a promotion here or there, but they don't really have what we call in the game industry live ops. So let's start and take a minute. Could you explain live ops? Because you guys were really pioneers in live ops in the West. It happened in the East, but you're pioneers of live ops in the West. What is it exactly? We look at it live ops as a combination of new content, always coming into the game, right? To keep the game fresh and new. New pricing points for items. It could be items, it could be collectibles in the game. Always playing around with pricing point and what are you selling, right? And how are you selling it? Let me explain a little bit. You can sell one item at one price or you can sell 10 items that together they would cost $10, but you're selling it for eight, right? Sometimes people will buy the 10 items because they will feel, wow, I'm getting so much for this uh, price point. So you always need to combine different assets and think what people want to pay. And on top of that, of course, you need crazy segmentation. So you really need to understand your customer. There's a couple examples there. You'll be surprised. Sometimes there are people that pay $5 every day, right? And they will never pay $20 ever. Even though if you take five and multiply it by 30, they pay $150. They cannot psychologically pay more than $5. So offering him a $30 promotion or whatever product doesn't make any sense. You'll never convert. So there's many user behaviors. If it's how many times a month they pay, how often they pay, what is the price point? What are they buying exactly? So all of that needs to be data-driven, segmented, and kind of analyzed together with new content and together with tournaments and events, right? So you have to create an area of excitement. And tournaments, events are a very good way to create competition, excitement, and give back rewards to your top players. This is a place where a free player could possibly earn something that is usually paid or a paid player would, would buy, right? So you again, through live ops, you can incentivize a lot of competition between free and paid players. And you can also, on top of that, incentivize a lot of engagement. Just the last thing, what's important here, what a lot of companies don't kind of understand is they don't invest behind it. This takes time. You need proper teams on this. This this cannot be one, two-man operation. So companies really need to commit to it long-term. And the payback is definitely huge for any product, any company. I think that, you know, maybe to explain it to non-game founders, I think that, you know, the equivalent could be an activity on your e-commerce website where there is a competition between users. They choose clothing and one of them gets or a few of them winning something can get their card for free, but many others are buying or a special offer where you can buy a shirt. But if you bring 10 other friends to buy the same shirt, you're going to get a 50% discount or things like that that are not like one-off thing that's always on the website, but there is a day in the week 
week where something special is happening and people get notified that this something special is happening. And then I'm not going to get the same notification as you because I can't bring 10 friends. So maybe my offer is going to be three friends, but you've already brought in the past tens of friends. So your offer is going to be for 10 friends and I'm going to get the offer on the jacket I like and you're going to get the offer on the shoes you like. And all these things are segmented and they're live and they're exciting and they have leaderboards and there's something that gets me more engaged because it's actually fun and it's actually a higher level of excitement than normal activity on the website. That would be the equivalent, right? The more of that you do, the more you learn about your customer also at the same time. So you're kind of gaining advantage over time. In comparison to have something static or, you know, periodical sales, the more you can do, the more you can get user engagement and excitement in the product, regardless of what it is, the more benefit you're going to get. And the customer also, I think. And so if I'm a founder and I want to start doing things like that, what are the things I need to build in my company or what are the kind of people I need to bring in that are going to make this useful other than trying to steal top live ops people from games companies? I think in today's time, it's easier than ever, if you ask me, because where we had to build all that out by ourselves, today, uh, Amazon, Google give you so many solutions. I think people don't look deep enough there. They have all the data infrastructure solutions. They have all the real-time server data solutions. So a lot of the technologies out there, you just pick it up, but you still need people to operate it. You still need analysts. You still need people that will, that will do the hard work of segmenting it, of thinking what type of content people will want. So the good thing is the infrastructure is there. It's easier than ever accessible. You still need talent to run this. Usually start slow. And as you get better, learn your customer, you kind of become much more segmented about it. You know what kind of content they want over time more and more. It's hiring and investing long-term. It's not something that from day one you should expect magic, right? It's like anything else in business. No, but I do think that this is one of the deep secrets of the game industry that other industries got to learn from because, you know, I think that people are not aware of it, but I think that you take any successful game and you strip it out of live ops and you lose probably 40% of revenues, right? It's like you really lose big part of it. And so get, being able, it's like a magic gift that keeps on giving because when you get more uh, revenue out of customers, you basically can then go, because the customer value becomes higher, you can go and basically then acquire more customers because their value is going to be higher. And so this is basically starting your growth loop. And if you don't do it and your lifetime value is lower because you're not doing it, then you just can't acquire customers. And that basically you know, deems you to be with lower revenues and a smaller company. And so this is really one of the top secrets of the game industry. And what games do that others don't do is that we try so many things that doesn't work, but what we keep trying and we keep trying to innovate it. Okay, also in live ops, also in products. So I think a lot of the companies are afraid to do that. And that's in games, I get it. It's easier because content maybe won't cost us as much as, you know, something physical in e-commerce, but not trying is much more costly than making mistakes. So you have to like, maximize, operate your product to the fullest. I've got to ask you one question about the game industry. So, you know, we are now, the game industry is it's, it's, it's all time high. Games are bigger than any other entertainment. Games are, you know, it's growing. Last year, it, you know, the game industry grew by tens of percent and continues to grow. What do you think about the status of the industry? What are you, kind of your predictions to where we're going to see the industry evolving in the coming few years? I think it's an amazing place, but I truly think it's just starting out. I think the base of gamers is growing faster than ever. And it's super exciting for any game developer if you're small or big. So, And the type of games, the range of games that we're seeing succeeding, monetizing, 
is also growing. So that's very beautiful. If you're a three-people team or if you're a thousand-people team, there's opportunity for everybody. But if I had to look long-term, what do I see? I see bigger games, bigger in the sense like higher product value, multi-platform launching at the same time, so similar to what Genshin Impact did, right? They launched, just tell you the, quickly the story of that. They basically took a very known game, which is Zelda, which was on Switch. It was a paid game. And they said, okay, and there were so many people that didn't have Switch wanted to play Zelda. So what did they build Zelda? They took down the paywall, which they made it super free, right? They made it accessible across any platform. And they kind of exploded and created a huge viral loop for them also because everybody started talking about it. So bigger games, higher production value, and much more innovation in terms of gameplay. Right. I tend to agree. I also think it's becoming sadly slightly tougher for small teams because the expectation of users is so much higher than it was years ago. And as you said, if you're not high production value, if you're not a great game, if you're not multi-platform, then your chances of succeeding are smaller today than they were before. Yeah, I think the good thing is that will force companies to try to be a little more innovative. If before, fast following was a very viable strategy for many of the even small smaller companies. So today you will have to think outside of the box. The way you may mitigate the risk of user acquisition is to come up with something slightly newer, slightly better. That doesn't necessarily need to be bigger, right? But as long as your user feels it's fresh, they see that in your value proposition, you will still get low CPIs today, right? So it's the challenge of CPIs becomes when you're not differentiated enough, when you kind of compete head-on with the big giants. So I completely agree. I think that at the state of the industry, new startups definitely need to be more innovative than they were before if they want to succeed. And that is actually not a bad thing. One last question for me. Assuming you're starting a new company today, if you're a founder starting a new company today and you need to fight all these huge companies that are around and you want to be able to beat them, Kind of what's the one thing, you know, from you know, building, you know, a company that got to close to a billion dollar, what is your one tip that you think founders of new companies need to focus on if they want to have a chance in today's fast moving world? I think you need a very strong core team. So what I believe in that is the first four or five key people, if it's product, CTO, if it's producer, art director, that needs to be super core and so super top talent. Outside of that, you can be much more lenient in the sense you can take people with less experience that are more hungry to learn and they kind of have the patience to be with you for many, many years. Because as a games founder, if 10 years ago it took you two months to create a game, today it's year plus, if not two plus, right? And you need to have a chance to have a couple shots. So you need four years, four or five years. So as a games founder, I think you need to have the passion, the patience, of course, the capital. And the core team needs to be really strong. If the core team is strong, you don't necessarily need to have 100 top employees. I think that that's even counterproductive. And patience. Patience is the biggest thing in games industry that a lot of founders found out works magic because you always acquire knowledge and get better. What do I mean by that? There were plenty of, even Epic, right? For five, six years that they didn't have a hit and then boom, they got Fortnite. So it's not a business that grows from month to month always, although some companies do. But if you're patient enough, if you believe in the team, believe in yourself, it's a matter of time until you get a hit. And we've seen that last 15 years proven out all the time from companies all over the world. If it's Eastern Europe, if it's Southeastern Asia, you don't necessarily need to be in the biggest hubs. You just need to have teams that want to learn what want to get better and want to succeed. That's the way we kind of look at it. I love that because this is exactly what we believe. If you build the right core team and you have the right direction and you work hard and you iterate fast, results will eventually come. There's no question. Gabi? Just last question from me to you. 
as somebody that is an investor, how do you match that expectation that an investor has from a team to succeed relatively fast, right? At least the financial expectation to having the patience and you believing in the team and not seeing the results from day one. And how is it different from if you would invest in a games company to you would have the same expectation from an e-commerce company or any other field? Like, what do you guys think about that? I think that at the end of the day, it's a great question. And it is slightly different, although not that different between game companies and non-game companies, that what we know is that exits in the market today you know, take between seven to 10 years. So we're not expecting anything immediate, but what we are expecting immediate, we're expecting uh, usually a relatively immediate display of product market fit. What we want is we want to know that the company is running in the right direction. The company, you know, at the end of the day, companies that die are those that uh, run out of money before they find product market fit. And what we're really panicking about is if we're seeing a company moving in the same course, not finding their product market fit and not changing, not iterating, not pivoting, not trying to find it. And often the real conflicts between us and founders, if there are, are we're Founders are saying, hey, I'm going to continue at the same course. And we sometimes, from our experience, are looking and saying, look, you know, you're not going to change anything material. This is not going to get dramatically better. Now, this is a bit different in the game industry, because in the game industry, I think that when you get to a specific playable game that already has, as you suggested, a great production quality on the core, if the numbers are not there, because the numbers are so obvious, it's very difficult for the founders to basically you know, put their hand in the sand and say, oh, that's okay, that's going to be fine. Because it's so easy to benchmark today. It's so easy to see your retention compared to the, you know, the retention you know, in the industry for this segment. We still see this. We still see founders that believe that they're only going to change the character's color and everything's going to work well. We hardly see this with experienced founders. And so you know, for us, this is not about seeing financial results fast. It's about us seeing the process of iterating and changing course and optimizing toward finding your product market fit. And as long as we're seeing this as a fund, as investors, we're happy with the process. We're happy with, you know, it's fine. If somebody's lucky, they can find this in two months and somebody else can find it in two years. The part that really bothers me is when I see people that are not trying. They chose a course and they're running in this course and the numbers tell them that it's not hitting. It's, they don't have product market fit. And they're like expecting that small changes are going to get it going. And we all know that small changes hardly ever are going to make big changes in the numbers. And so, you know, as long as we're seeing the direction, as long as we're seeing the process, as long as we're seeing the founders obsessed with finding the product market fit, we really don't care how long it takes, despite the common thinking that VCs want everything to work really, really fast. So I think that's not really an issue. Gabi, this has been like the decade of working together. This has been super fun and learned a lot. And I hope that everybody else did as well. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Gigi. I hope it was helpful and really appreciate it, Gigi. And this is a great format and you should continue doing many more of these into the future. Thank you, Gabby. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the NFX Podcast. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to the NFX Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more information on building iconic technology companies, visit nfx.com.